The Start On Demand. Hi there, it's Brett McGarry, one-third of Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. On today's podcast, we'll learn of one Winnipeg man's quest to visit every outdoor hockey rink in the city. Transit wants to install safety shields on all its buses, but how long will it take? The world lost a pair of amazing entertainers on Wednesday. Bob Einstein, the man better known as Super Dave Osborne, or Marty Funkhauser, if you like curb your enthusiasm, and Mean Gene Okerlund, maybe the most recognizable voice in professional wrestling. We'll speak to a Winnipeg wrestling expert who just happens to be our colleague, Joe Aiello from Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby on Winnipeg's Best Rock Power 97. This is the podcast for the start. The ODR, one of uh, Winnipeg's favorite places, the outdoor rink. Even my kids were calling it just the ODR. Really? They yes. act- oh, I, th- I really wow. felt like I had heard that acronym for the first time the other day. I've started using it since. I think yeah. it's great. I, I, we never called it that when it's I was a kid. Head to the ODR. It's like going to a bar. Well, let's go to the ODR. <laughs> <laughs> it should be a bar, right, Brett? Yeah, I love it. Let's the open. ODR. I've never heard of that. Let's uh, lay down some money, get some investors, and open an ODR. <laughs> uh, one man is uh, intent on checking out all the ODRs in Winnipeg. Our own Christian O'Mel, host of the 680 CGB Sports Show. Christian, this is quite a task you've laid out and declared for yourself. Yeah, by the way, when you texted me that you want to talk about the ODR, I had to think for a second what you were talking about. <laughs> something I had never heard before either. But I... I should, probably should have started this when the rinks opened two months ago. I kind of gave myself a lot <laughs> less of a timeline, but I love playing outside. I love skating outdoors, and it's one thing I've really enjoyed since moving to Winnipeg because that's something that, yeah, it's cold where I grew up, but the fact that there are dozens and dozens of these outdoor hockey rinks that you can just show up and play at any time I think is amazing, and I think if I was a kid in this city, you couldn't get me off those rinks. It would be a place I'd be all the time. Uh, first time I went out to an outdoor rink was only a couple of weeks ago. I went to the Forks a lot the first couple of years I was here, but never really used the ODRs, as you would call them. But I went in the, to River Heights, and the ice there was great. And I, what have I been doing my whole time here? So I, I've been spending a lot of time, and I thought I looked up the list of rinks, and it's daunting. There's probably like 80-something. But I thought, let's try it. So yesterday I got it started. And uh, today I'm on my way to a rink right now. I'm going to hit up the uh, Valor Community Center. I believe it's the Isaac Brock site I'm on my way to oh, right now. Oh, that's the one I wanted to go to you with. That's where I grew up playing hockey. I would. Greg, sometimes... we can go to the same one twice. It's fine. Okay, good. Because I used to sometimes skip school, <laughs> and my my classmates could see me out the window skating oh at God. the outdoor rink. I was pretty audacious about it. I didn't really <laughs> care. So yeah, they are addicting, and it's a it was a great way to grow up. So uh, just... The experience, I know the first one that I saw you tweet out was the the ice at River Heights. They always had great Mm -hmm. ice at River Heights. It was almost like indoor ice, he said. Yeah, it was fantastic. And part of it is the conditions, right? You're at the mercy of Mother Nature, and it's been cold and not snowy, and that really helps the ice. And uh, Because my dad had a rink growing up in our side yard in Terra, Ontario, and we got a lot more snow, and it would be a lot more mild and inconsistent. So you'd get ice, great ice for a couple of weeks, and then you'd have really crappy ice for about a month. But the conditions at River Heights were great. John Franklin, there are so many sheets there. It's, it's amazing. They've got an outdoor hockey rink. They've got a bunch of leisure rinks. They've got so much space. And if you're somebody in Winnipeg that likes to skate, there's pretty much something in your neighborhood no matter what. Am I right? 
I think so. I think you got an option within a few blocks in some cases. Do you have a strategy, Christian? Like you're going to go geographically, alphabetically, or just what piques your fancy? Like how are you doing it? So what I'm starting with is convenient. So the three I started with on day one were just the three closest to where I live. And uh, today I'm going to the ones that are kind of close to where we work. So I'm just going with convenience at first. I don't know when it's going to be go to Transcona, maybe a weekend thing, go to the places that are further away. I have no strategy at all. It's just just like my schooling. I don't have any kind of strategy. I don't do any preparation. I kind of just wing it and hope it works. So there's much less on the line with this. I hope to get it done, all of them, by the time that the the snow melts. It's going to be probably a really tough task. If there are 80-something outdoor hockey rinks, that's really i got to do a couple a day. And my legs are probably going to get a little sore, but I think it's going to be worth it. And again, you guys can join me I, I, if we can make some plans. But we can probably hit up a couple rinks on a weekend or something. So, Christian, are you going to these rinks to play hockey, or are you just going to skate? So the rule is I have to play hockey on them. So because there's so many there's pleasure rinks where I don't think they like you playing hockey on them, I'm going to specifically outdoor hockey rinks. So. I've got my stick, I've got a puck in the trunk of my car, and i got my skates, and that's all I need to have a good time. And does it count? Do you have to do, like, nine laps or three slap shots, or, like, or is it just I get out there? I don't have an actual number. I just kind of screw around for 20 minutes and remind myself how not good I am. All right. Well, don't be in touch with the Guinness Book of World Records with no. an attitude like that and a plan like that. This is not a record. It's just a personal challenge for a New Year's resolution, I guess. But well, While you're out there, you should check out, I mean, you should rate in terms of, you know, the seating or if they have indoor warming shacks or concessions nearby or an ODR bar, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> well, so far, I got to say the uh, best one I've seen and I think was Windsor Park. And this was before I did this whole challenge. Austin Sergus and I went up to Windsor Park about three weeks ago and they got two beautiful rinks there. Uh, there was a, a school right beside it and had a recess and someone kicked a soccer ball onto the rink, which was really intimate, but at the same time, it's still pretty good condition. Christian O'Mell, host of the CJOB Sports Show, Monday to Friday, 7 to 9 p.m., joining us to explain his plan to hit every ODR in Winnipeg. <laughs> you can follow his journey on Twitter, at CJOB Christian. Follow us while you're there as well, Brett McGarry. GMAC, WPG, McNabb on Global, and of course, follow 680CJOB on Twitter. And in a moment, we're going to talk, well, first of all, the uh, the rink that he mentioned in your hood. At Isaac Brock, yes. How much time did you spend there? Hours and hours and hours. Uh, it was a situation where, I think I've told this story before, uh, on a winter night, my mom would ask me, you got homework? Nope. What are you doing here? Get out. <laughs> <laughs> Get your rear end down to the club, we used to call it. Yeah. And you just phone your uh, bunch of friends, where are you going to be tonight? Yeah, see you at the club. Or you just go, and you knew there would be people there. And if it was too cold to skate, you just hung out in the community center and visited. And typically, we would get out on the ice. If the lights were on, it meant the rink was open. And didn't matter how cold it was. We were out there playing shinny, doing whatever we needed to do to stay warm. It was uh, some of the best times of our lives. Did you call it the ODR then? No. <laughs> no, this is a new thing in yeah. the last uh, handful of years. So I, I like the acronym. It's kind of cool. Yeah. If it, it, well, if, if it makes it cooler for them to get out, I like it. I Even though I never played organized hockey, <clears throat> wasn't really good at skating, I still liked to go to the, the whatever the, the nearest rink was for me. It was uh, Maple Leaf. 
on Kildare. I'm trying to think where that is. It was uh, just off of Kildare and Madeline. Okay. It's not a community club anymore, but uh, I was sad when they, they shut that rink down. There was another one called Pirates uh, just off Plessy and Ravelston, or was it, pardon me, Rosso. Uh, that got shut down uh, because the main club now is Park City, uh, sort of in Lakeside Meadows in Transcona. But I would walk over to the rink and skate and shoot a puck around and just enjoy the winter, enjoy the the ice. So at Isaac Brock, we had one rink that was for spongy. Yep. So you didn't use your skates at all. Then we had three hockey rinks and then a pleasure skating rink. Wow. So big complex. Wow. Back at back in the day, it was a going concern. Oh, it was yeah. fantastic. Uh, even back in the day, Stu Nixon, the, now the head coach of Oak Park, a uh, high school football team, used to run the club, and he used to. Used to try and keep the lights on for us as late as he could before the phone would start ringing from the neighbors. Time to shut off the lights. Get those kids home. Up next, since Christian has embarked on a quest to visit all the outdoor rinks or ODRs in Winnipeg, we're going to find out if we have ever embarked on a similar quest. And my quest, not quite as healthy as Christian's. Mackley, McGarry, McNabb, we just heard from Christian O'Mell, host of the CJOB Sports Show, which airs Monday to Friday, 7 to 9. He has embarked on a quest to visit every outdoor hockey rink in Winnipeg. When I think of a quest, I think of this. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, we have gathered Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Jeff Forte to find out what is your quest, if you've ever had a similar quest to Christian O'Mel. And, uh, Jeff, why don't we start with you? Oh, Jeff sure. Uh, well, I like the outdoor track, the skating rinks. There's outdoor running tracks at a lot of the schools, and my quest was to run 10 miles on each track. And uh, I'm just kidding. My real yeah. quest was to watch all six seasons of Lost in six weeks, and I did it in five once, so there's that. Boom. No Atta need boy. to have any more quests. <laughs> <Atta> boy. <laughs> Nicely done. Oh, my gosh. I was like, I've never heard him talk about running. This is yeah. so fascinating. I was yeah. just going to ask, what have you done with Jeff? <laughs> Maybe you could pair that with uh, Kevin the Garbage Man's quest to uh, try and eat every flavor of chips in Winnipeg. He just texted that in. That's so good. That's a good one. That's, that's a good that one. is a good uh-huh. and easily attainable. Well, I don't know. There are a lot of different really? kinds of chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're diff- it's not just old Dutch and. Frito Lays. There's all these weird Mrs. Vicky's and uh, the 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 kettle brand and yeah that I, that I, could keep you busy for a long yeah. time. That's a tasty quest though. I like. But it, how proud would you be by the end? Hey, like just bragging to all your friends. <laughs> yeah, slow walking into every room. Yeah, yeah I did it. I'm That's that right. guy. I did it. I'd be very proud and I'd be very crammed into my jeans, which would no longer fit. So, <laughs> actually, that's a, that reminds me of Mike. This wasn't so much a quest, kind of a more of a bet. Back in June of 1995, McDonald's taste of the month was the superhero burger, which later became the hockey hero burger. I don't know if you remember that. It was in conjunction with Batman Forever, which came out that year, and uh, it was like a, it was on this little mini hoagie bun with three patties and two two or three kinds of cheese. And my buddy uh, Keith and I, we both loved it, so we had this bet to see who could eat more of them throughout the month of June. So my quest was to defeat him, and I did. I had 16 of those burgers over the course of the month, and he had nine, so he didn't come close. Was this just a Winnipeg thing? 
No, I, I think it was because I don't remember Canada. that. Like, I mean, when I tell people about McDonald's pizza, they all like. When I lived in BC, people would look at me yeah. weird and because it was we, basically only in right. Winnipeg. Right? Yeah, oh, really? And Brandon had it too. Yeah. New, Bra- New Brunswick. Yeah, or yeah Brandon something? had it. New Brunswick. Uh, Maritimes, I get the McLobster every now and then, which mm. I don't think we ever get. No, uh, probably not. Yum, yeah. Yummy, yummy. But uh, yeah, so that it, it did I'm come back now. a couple of times. <laughs> uh, so my quest clearly not as healthy as Christian's. Kelly, have you ever? Had a quest. I, I still one day would like to hit all 32 Major League Baseball parks. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever do it. There was a, I think there was one guy who was going to try to do it in a month. And so you'd have to double up, you know, uh, on a couple. Well, because it is, if the schedule worked out, you could, you know, watch a Yankees day mm-hmm. game and maybe a Mets night game. Mm-hmm. You know, you could watch a Baltimore day game and a Washington Nationals night game, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it's, it's possible to do it. Uh, and I've and I've read about guys doing this before, so that that would be the one thing I'd, I'd like to say. I've seen a ball game at every single Major League Baseball park. Well, what do you have? Do you have any on the list already that you've done? Like, yeah, I've done a couple. Yeah, but yeah. I've uh, you know uh, there would probably still be oh, I don't know twenty eight, twenty nine of them that I'd be still cool need to road get to. Chip. Oh, I've got, yeah, I've got yeah. eighteen. I've got 18 in the Major League ballparks. My brother and I actually set out to do this yeah. back in 2001. And, uh, well, September 11th got in the way because baseball oh, shut down yeah. for over a week. Yeah. And so we ended up having to come home. And I'm not the biggest baseball fan in the world, but I love the ballparks. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm I'm with you. So I'm not going to complete it all in one summer as I'd planned to do, but I do intend to do it over my lifetime to get to every single major league ballpark. So. Yeah, if, if, if some of my financial planning was to ever strike gold, <laughs> then uh, uh, that would definitely be something I'd set the money aside uh, to, to do for sure. Well, our, our friend uh, Rabbi Matt Leibel has yeah. actually done that in real life. Has so, he? Good yeah, for him. Absolutely. Yeah. What about you, McNabb? I was just thinking, like, I, I, I'm the one that said we should talk about this, but I actually don't have a... I don't have a real quest, but, but I, I don't know. Like I, I like the idea of like I've done a lot of traveling, and so I've got two continents I still haven't hit. So I'd like to get them off the list, but it's not like I've set out to do that. And I've hit every NHL rink in this country, but that that wasn't a goal either. It just happened to be fortunate to live in different places and that kind of stuff. So Which now continents are missing: South America and Australia. You've been to Antarctica? But, oh no, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Count that one. <laughs> you you not, have to. You don't count it or not. Sorry. Jeff. No, no. I definitely don't so count that one. Three more than McNabb. Three I'm more going with two. Go and you're going to have to get like a science degree or something to get onto Antarctica. They don't. That's not a tourism destination. No. You, you can't say I'm going to all of them except that it's not all of them. Exactly. Mm. It doesn't work. No. This is what I'm saying. This is why, well, then I'll come up with a better quest. I'm, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> can't him and hog. What I, I am. Forte. Yeah, um, something that I would like to do, like Christian, it's here in Winnipeg, but I'd like to go and try to get to as many music venues as possible. Mm-hmm. We have so many great music venues and so many great um, bands, local bands here, and I'd like to uh, see as many bands and see all these venues. That's, uh, that's a cool yeah. one, because so, like, even just the buildings themselves would be neat to be in, some of the ones oh, that yeah. we don't well, get yeah. to, right? Everything from like the Burton Cummings to you know a small little pub. You know, There's yeah. so many around here, and... Uh, 
I think I'd really enjoy that. Is there one that, that you uh, want to get to that's on your list that you can think oh, of? Oh, I have no idea right now. <laughs> there's, okay. There's just so many, so. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. Make a list, Jeff. Yeah, I like that. Uh, another quest that I, another unhealthy quest that comes to mind is every year is uh, Burger Week. Yes. There's always a quest to try to hit as many as possible, but there's only so many, there's only so much time and so many calories well, that I can consume. Yeah. Don't we have the... Didn't we have the biggest list of restaurants participating yeah. over out of the yeah. whole country? So yeah. Yeah. try and do that in one week. <laughs> three a day, piece of cake. Yeah. But, but the idea, <laughs> if you went to, you'd have to do it three a day, but then you could share, like just have a quarter of a burger, exactly. like a bite, yeah. a bite at each one. Oh my gosh. So that would be six. And then if you went in with a group of four, that would be 20. I think you'd die. You could, I feel like that's like a, a killer You could do it, Hitman. You could do it. <laughs> it would be, it'd be as brave as the it's quest of the Holy Grail, though. Yes, just like the Holy Grail. The bread smash of La Burger. He put his life on the line. Uh, almost two years since a Winnipeg bus driver was killed while on the job. And in the days after Irvin Jubal Fraser's murder in February of 2017, hundreds of his fellow transit employees took to the streets to say more needs to be done to keep them safe. So among the many measures proposed back then were bus shields. And it now appears the city is moving one step closer to purchasing them for all its buses. But as Global's Kevin Hirschfeld explains, even if the city approves the $3.15 million price tag, it could still be years before the installations of all these shields are complete. New protection for Winnipeg bus drivers could soon be on the way. A report from Winnipeg Transit to City Hall recommends installing safety shields in all of Winnipeg's 600-plus buses. It has been taking too long. It's been slow moving. The transit union has been calling for more safety measures on buses since the murder of driver Irvin Fraser in 2017. The union president is pleased with the shield report, but says it shouldn't stop there. Obviously we want to see more. We do want to see transit police department and uh, we want to work with the city and uh, transit department be able to get that done. Drivers took part in a pilot project last year where they tested several shields and were able to vote on the one they preferred. This model will be a shield that has a, an adjustable piece so operators can open it or close it further if they feel that they needed that enhanced protection. Winnipeg Transit wants all shields installed in three years but hopes it can be done sooner. Installation in other cities is taking anywhere from 18 months to 10 years. If you do an install in, in, uh, in uh, more quickly, there can be staffing and resource considerations. Uh, and if you step it out, then uh, those are things that you might be able to do uh, more efficiently. So those are all considerations we're going to have to have at council. And if city councillors are in favour of the report, then that $3 million price tag will be included in the 2019 budget. Kevin Hirschfield, Global News. As Kevin explained, Toronto started installing shields in its buses 10 years ago. Carlos Santos is with the union representing Toronto bus drivers and says while the majority like them, not all even use them. The shields have helped. They are a step in the right direction. However, we, we do know that, you know, when people get to the end, they need to use the facilities. So they got to get out of the vehicle. They have to go to the bathroom. They have to come back. A lot of uh, operators, we still have probably 50 or 60% of our operators that don't even use the shield. Uh, and the two main reasons are, number one is glare. So we get a lot of glare, so it becomes a safety issue. We, we get a lot of glare from the sun when we close up our uh, shield. And the second reason is claustrophobic. A lot of people are claustrophobic and they feel squeezed in there. 
so they feel uncomfortable operating the vehicle. So that's Carlos Santos in conversation with our own Cameron Poitras and Julie Buckingham on the news yesterday. So even when they have them, some bus drivers in Toronto are choosing not to use them. So clearly, Brett, this is not a panacea in terms of driver safety, but it is one step closer. And the fact that it's going to take a while. It's interesting it's to hear how, how right? long that would go. Like first it has to get approved and then they'd have to contract it out. And then it takes like all this time to install them in more than 600 buses. I didn't realize it was going to be that kind of time frame. But if half even feel better with them, I seems smart to me. The claustrophobia thing, too, is a good point that I that I hadn't thought of. But I've, when I used to take the bus, I would often think, man, that looks like a tight mm-hmm. space to be crammed into for an entire day. Even in the back of taxis, um, I remember being in Chicago and they have the full shield right across. Mm-hmm. And I just I was pregnant and hot. And, you know, I was just like, oh, my gosh, get me out of this cab. It just was like a tomb, it felt like. So I can appreciate the, that for sure. You know what's worse is being the backseat of a police car. Mm. Yeah. I'll um, leave that there. Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> Meanwhile, Winnipeg is moving ahead on a plan to bring in electric buses, but not very quickly. On Tuesday, it would vote on a plan that would simply ask officials to provide an estimate on how much it would cost to buy up to 20 electric buses. Right now, there's still no money in the budget to buy them. But the head of New Flyer, Paul Subri, has previously said to CJOB, it's open to finding new ways to help get them on the road. And if you go back in time a little bit, we had pilot projects here in Manitoba between New Flyer and Hydro and the city and transit and, and the provincial government. And we've proven that, that electrification both makes sense both technically, operationally uh, and financially. But, but the realities of the old days of sitting back, as you said, and waiting for an RFP and then trying to propose and so forth, maybe are different in our environment. And so I think what New Flyer needs to do is we need to be far more active and progressive in rethinking how can we be a catalyst for changing the way it works. And whether that means we've got to get into you know, turnkey type offerings or whether there's a, a story around financing or changing the way the government pays or leasing batteries and buying the buses. and. But I think the game's going to be different, and we're going to be active. One of those things is private-public partnerships, something that uh, governments of all political stripes have been looking at. Is that is there potential in that? Well, I think there has to be, and I, I think companies like us are willing to use uh, our technical resources, our expertise, our balance sheets for that matter. And I think that that game going forward needs to, to really think about changing. And if, whether it's a, a turnkey solution or a public-private partnerships, the reality of it is we got something to offer. We got all the tools and all the players here in Manitoba. And uh, and if we got to take on risk that we don't currently today, then then let's get that on the table. But I think we're there. There's a great opportunity. That's Paul Subri, head of New Flyer here in Winnipeg, in conversation with CJOB's Richard Cluche. McGarry McNabb. His name was Bob Einstein, but he was better known as the funny accident-prone stuntman Super Dave Osborne. Yesterday, the actor who also played Marty Funkhauser in Curb Your Enthusiasm died at the age of 76. Global's Camille Caramali has more. Mike, are you there? The wind is about 100 miles an hour. Listen, I'm going to go down. I'm going to take the elevator down. I'll see I you down there. I won't need it. Okay. An iconic TV moment that tied the surging fame of Super Dave Osborne to one of the most celebrated landmarks in Canada. 
the character of Super Dave was huge. Before his hit TV show character Super Dave Osborne, he was known just as Bob Einstein. Born in 1942 and raised in LA, where he won two Emmys as a TV show writer, but it was Toronto that gave him his big break as an actor when he became a regular on the hit 80s comedy sketch show, Bizarre. Train tracks, double check that, I'm gonna back up. Bizarre was one of the first uh, syndicated uh, comedy shows out of Canada, so it was shown all across America. So even though he was an American guy, he got his fame from a show that was basically shot in Toronto. The character Super Dave Osborne and his elaborate stunts kept audiences laughing, always using a dummy to pull them off. Bob was a, a, an absolute consummate professional, could be a tough taskmaster. Dale Taylor was the production manager for the show where he and Einstein became lifelong friends. He had a wicked sense of humor. He's a glorious uh, guy to be around in terms of his humor. Super Dave Osborne was so popular, the character was given a spin-off show, which aired on global television in the late 80s and early 90s. Super Dave, Saturdays at 7 on Global. Einstein found new ways to entertain audiences in the 2000s, making a resurgence in his career with appearances on hit comedy shows such as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Arrested Development, and Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Einstein died of cancer at the age of 76, but for many his memory is still very much alive. I think he will live on forever on, on YouTube because young people are certainly fascinated by that aesthetic of comedy and nobody did it better than Bob Einstein. Camille Karamali, Global News. Super Dave Osborne. I always loved watching Super Dave. Every time he would... I just watched videos this morning of him inside a car that was getting picked up by this massive... It was in a junkyard, Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my nose! This is my knee! <laughs> it, was, it was really good stuff. I, it was the only reason I watched Bizarre, because overall Bizarre was just, I didn't think all that great, but it was always better when Super Dave made an appearance. His yeah. voice also, too, like, I think if you had played that for me and said, who, who is this person, like, you would, that would be my first guess. It's pretty, like... Just his sound. Very distinctive, right? Yeah. Well, and it got more distinctive when he was on Kirby yes. Enthusiasm. Here's a, just a couple of seconds of that. What did you say to Dan? What did I... Hello, boy. Did you meet Sheriff, my dog? No, I didn't. I said, Dan, this is Larry David. Then I left you. And I said, hi. I said, yeah. hello. I yeah. said, hi, Dan. Yeah, what else? <laughs> you know, little small talk. How are you doing? Where are you from? And all that. That's and, it? And then, what did I say? I said... It must be hard as a guy to follow. Why didn't you just say hello, Dan? I'm Larry. <laughs> <laughs> He's always so mad. Drives yeah. the Mojave Desert. Yeah. So funny. I almost couldn't watch him on that show because it just didn't, I couldn't connect. Like, I couldn't forget who he had been as Super Dave. And most people, it turns out, didn't realize he was Albert Brooks's brother. Oh, I didn't know that I either. I actually didn't know that either. Now you know. with the brand new World Wrestling Federation champion, Hulk Hogan. You proved it to thousands and thousands of fans, not only here tonight in Madison Square Garden, but throughout the wrestling world. You're some meeting. They proved it.
The unforgettable voice of Mean Gene Okerlund, wrestling announcer extraordinaire who died yesterday in hospital at the age of 76. He'd had three kidney transplants over the years, and his condition recently worsened. Our resident wrestling expert in the building is Joe Aiello from Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby on Winnipeg's Best Rock Power 97. Joe, before we ask you about Mean Gene, maybe just refresh our memory. And for those who don't know, you have a background in wrestling, specifically with the WWE. Yeah, back in 1992, so a long time ago, I had an opportunity to uh, to do some work with them when a guy by the name of Sean Mooney was one of their uh, announcers, was getting married. So they needed somebody to do a two-week stint and fill in because Mean Gene Okerlund was already on the road doing a lot of the stand-up stuff at the live tapings. So I ended up getting that gig and it led into some full-time work until I decided to stay home for radio. But the first time I met Gene, it was kind of interesting because I grew up here in Winnipeg. So I was lucky enough and old enough to know when he had his days with the American Wrestling Association, the AWA, I was just enamored by this guy. He was the guy. And I still think to this day, the best ever stand-up microphone guy because he could sell tickets. They always say in wrestling you have to have charisma as a wrestler to be able to sell tickets. But I thought Gene Okerlund was the best. Like, I'd be sitting at home on Saturdays watching this, bugging my dad an hour later, going, Dad, we gotta go! We gotta go! (laughs) And Gene would be there always raising his voice, getting you all amped up with, Run! Don't walk! Get your tickets in advance! That kind of thing. So I think that's who I kind of emulated, actually, in doing... Uh, wrestling locally, and then even with them, and it was funny because Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, saw my uh, audition tape, and when he met me, uh, we were in Cleveland, Ohio, and he said, come on, I'm going to introduce you to uh, Mean Jane because that's what you reminded me of. And I thought that was the biggest compliment ever, and Bobby the Brain Heenan, who I didn't meet at the time, had told Kurt Henning the same thing, so that was kind of cool. Well, you know, I can't help but think that Mean Gene was your Bob Irving. Yeah, you know the yeah, same absolutely. thing for me, right? And and getting to work with Bob now, and so I can only imagine how this has affected you. But tell tell us about that first time that you met Mean Gene. So at the time, I was flying uh, into Cleveland, and, and the way it worked is you would do like a, a TV taping in a, a live venue, another TV taping in a live venue, and then usually a pay per view. So. We would land in Cleveland, Ohio, got there from Toronto, cleared customs in Toronto, my WWF blue blazer and and suit and everything else. You get to Cleveland, you check in at the Marriott. From there, it was get a rental car at the airport, and you're driving to Erie, Pennsylvania to do one night of taping. So I don't meet Gene uh, there. Drive back that night uh, to Cleveland, and the experience of driving alone uh, at about two in the morning from Erie, Pennsylvania and wondering why I'm driving down the highway and I'm hearing a thud and then another thud smacking my rental car. And I look over and it's the big boss man and Kurt Henning throwing baked potatoes from <laughs> at my car, scaring the bejesus out of me and uh, getting back there. So we get back to the hotel and uh, they get there before me because they just race past me. I mean, these guys are on the road all the time. And they're waiting in the lobby. And they're laughing at the whole story when I get there. And they said, uh, and Kurt says, hey, I'll introduce you to Gene tomorrow. So we ended up back at the Marriott in the bar there. And there's Gene sitting there. And uh, so Kurt brings me over, introduces me to Gene. He says, yeah, come on, sit down, sit down, sit down. And I was smoking back at that time. So back then you could smoke right inside the lounge still, right? Yep. 
So Gene says, hey, do you mind if I have one of those? I don't really smoke. I said, yeah, of course, Gene. I'd be honored, right, having a cigarette and a drink with uh, Gene. So I buy a, a drink, and I'm the rookie. Like, you know, I'm this learning thing. And, of course, by about an hour and a half later, uh, my cigarettes are all gone. <laughs> and we bought a few drinks, and guess who got left with the bill? Because Gene <laughs> pulled pulled a rib on me, basically smoked all my cigarettes, and I bought him a few drinks because he was my idol. And uh, we had a good laugh about it the next night uh, as we were in Columbus, Ohio, for a pay-per-view. Wow. Did but he... he's just one of those guys, right? Like, uh, he'd been around the game a long time, started in Minnesota. And I think what made him so good was the fact that he wasn't very tall, which made the wrestlers look even bigger, especially back in the day. And he was a hype machine. He was so good at making faces when the, the bad guys were, were disgusting and he looked disgusted. And of course, when the good guys would come in there, he'd make them look even even uh, bigger than they really were in life, right? So, Talking with Joe Aiello from Power 97, Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby about Mean Gene Okerlund, who died yesterday at the age of 76. Now, when I think of Mean Gene, I always think first of stuff like the clip we played off the top, his interviews with Hulk Hogan. So here's little Mean Gene next to huge Hulk Hogan, who's like, well, you know something, Mean Gene, and he yes. gets right in his face and his arms are flying, he's ripping his shirt off. How can a guy... Just stay so straight-faced when you've got this animated wrestler who is losing his mind right beside you. And I think, well, I think the key is you're buying in. Like, you, that's your job, and you are just as hyped. All I remember is standing next to, I mean, the funniest story I could tell you is one, one of my first stories was uh, they, they brought me to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and it was a taping of a match for Coliseum Home Video. It wasn't for TV, and it was uh, Ric Flair. He was the champion at the time, and Brett the Hitman Hart. And the hitman was winning the title that night. And all day. So this tells you how serious these guys take their profession. And especially the title. Even though the, the finish and all that might be worked out. To these guys, it's still pride to be the top of the mountain. So these guys were going back and forth from Vince McMahon's dressing room in Saskatoon. Back and forth, back and forth all day. And you could feel the tension. So the match happens. Brett wins the title. I'm the one doing the interview with him for Coliseum Home Video after it. It was about 15 takes. I was terrible. Like, I was just so nervous and amped up. I was making mistakes. Brett says to me uh, on the spot, he goes, uh, Joe, don't worry about it. It happens to us all the time, right? You're just a little nervous. Relax. No problem. So I reel it off perfectly because Vince McMahon is standing behind the camera looking and watching this, so I'm really nervous. And they're telling me, to spread my legs, take my shoes off because I'm the same height as the hitman. So they want me a little shorter. And uh, I pull it off and Brett screws it up and we all started laughing. <laughs> oh. So that was pretty good. But the thing is a guy like Okerlund was so good at getting hyped up. Like you get hyped up because of the wrestler. So you just get right into that zone, I think. Well, and you know, if it's one thing that I've learned over the years in being in the studio with you guys or whoever it may be here at CJOB, because I'm the awestruck rookie for the most part still, right? And just learning from so many people, the idea of getting the respect and that interaction with the wrestlers must be huge. And the idea that Mean Gene was really on parallel with these guys in terms of the performance side outside of the ring. Just, you, I can only imagine what it took to earn their respect like that. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, and the thing was, if Okerlund was doing the interviews, usually you knew that was worth some ticket sales. 
because he was that good. But I remember back to the serious Gene Okerlund with the AWA when you had, you know, a more strict line of heels and baby faces, as they, they were called. And he would be in there and doing the interview and how disgusted he'd be by Bobby the Brain Heenan. But I thought the thing with Okerlund back then, he let the guys do the talking and then he sewed it up, which I think was pretty amazing. And I think one of the biggest mistakes the WWE did was let him go. Back in the day when a lot of those guys were signing with WCW, World Championship Wrestling at the time, and you're talking about Hogan, you're talking about Hall and Nash, the NWO, that was a big game changer if you followed wrestling. But I always thought one of the big pieces outside of Bobby the Brain Heenan or even Jesse Ventura was Gene Okerlund because he was still the front face of the WWE announcing. Even if you didn't follow wrestling, yeah. I think you right. knew who Mean Gene was, right? Yeah, because he was just this big, big persona of a little guy, right? That uh, bald head and little mustache and stood there and had this booming voice come out of nowhere, right? And I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, he became a character and he always had a sense of humor as the years went on when he went back to the WWE. And then, of course, he's done a few reality shows with them and that, but he was a character, yeah. And had health issues along the way. I, I don't uh, know the whole story, but I remember back in the day he had kidney issues and uh, I believe he went through a couple of transplants, but you know, and he made a living for a long time and there's been few that could ever say that in the world of professional wrestling. Like he wasn't out of work very long in his career. Joe Aiello from Power 97, Power Mornings with Philly Joe and Kirby. We spoke with him yesterday. Wrestling expert used to work in the WWE talking about the death of Mean Gene Ogerland. We start this half hour with our buddy Barrett Miller from Fort White Alive, because Barrett, we understand that Fort White is going to be alive with beer next week. Well, with beer making at least, um, yeah, uh, Saturday after next, um, I will actually be teaching an open fire beer making, open fire brewing class at Fort White. How did you fall? Like, is this something you've been doing for a while? How did you fall into brew mastery? Well, uh, first off, I'm not a brew master. Um, <laughs> I, I, that's that's sort of like lacing them up for a beer league and saying, "Oh, I'm a professional hockey player. <laughs> you might be really good at beer league, but to, in all fairness to the pros, I'm not." Okay. Um, but this particular uh, hobby, um, I did get hurt playing hockey. Couldn't play for a couple weeks. Decided that I needed to do something to fill my schedule. This is almost 15 years ago, and it's like, hmm, I like beer. I'm going to learn to do that. I'm going to learn to do that better. Um, about five years ago, some friends of mine with affiliations to a fort that you might say is lower down the river than <laughs> Upper Fort Gary uh, handed me some sketch notes from the first brewer to work in the Red River Valley, as far as we know, and I was able to put them into something that, like, okay, this kind of looks like a recipe, but... I can't do this on my stovetop or a propane burner. I want to do this on a fire. If only I had some place that offered 19th century technology and fire pits. Wait a second. I work at Fort White and we have a sod house. So um, my management team was gracious enough to say, hey, yeah, so long as nobody, so long as you're not selling anything and so long as it doesn't interfere with programming, like come in after hours, brew this up. And sort of thinking it's not going to be good. It was good. Really? And it was good enough that our public programmer at the time said, look, okay, can't serve, but we can teach. Would you teach? And it's been going on for the last uh, three winters now. Really? Mm -hmm. 
So you can't. So you can teach at this open fire brewing session, but you can't serve the beer. No, 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 no. The way no. Um, anybody who's thinking that they want to um, become the next, you know, garage brewer out there, there's a bunch of hoops that you have to jump through. You can't sell it or um, serve it unless it's um, free. It also takes a while. So it. Anybody could sample what we make next Saturday, but it would just sort of taste like hot, sweet grain juice. So okay. how long before you could actually drink About it? About six weeks. About six weeks for the recipes that we're brewing. So, really, really quick, maybe a month. So these are all locally grown ingredients, and maybe give us an idea of what goes mm-hmm. into this. Oh, as much as possible. Um, it is hops, as local as I can get them. In fact, some of them grow um, as shade plants at Fort White, so harvest the hop cones and... We'll be using some that were actually grown on site. Well, that's pretty local. Uh, if anybody drives out Highway 15 through Transcona, you drive past the great big malting plant. Uh, big concrete towers sometimes sometimes smells a little beery. Uh, try to use that as my base malt. Uh, not necessarily traditional, but it's Winnipeg. And then a few little touches here and there. Um, almost always some Harmony Honey from Fort White Farm sneaks into the recipes that I do on the campfire. So... Um, and then once it is all brewed up and bottled and carbonated, um, participants are sometimes sometimes magically able to find a bottle or two, uh, so they do get to try eventually, sometimes, the fruits of their labor. That is really neat. <laughs> so was beer a part of pioneer life once upon a time? You know, it was. It was. There's things that are easier to ferment um, if you have grapes or apples or any sort of fruit juice, you can make something pretty passable very easily. Um, Beer is kind of culturally important for a lot of people around the world. And you got to think, you're a thousand miles from home. You left, everybody calls it the old country, so you left the old country and now you're here on the prairies. Um, You managed to get a harvest in. It's getting dark, it's getting cold, but the real, the work in the fields is over. You want to celebrate a birthday. You want to celebrate a holiday. Yeah, it's maybe time to brew something up. The Hudson Bay Company brought their brewer because, like in a lot of places, beer was going to be healthier than water. You want to stick people out on the prairies for any extended time and expect them to work. Well, if you were here in 1860s, 1870-something, signing bonus. We're going to pay you lots of money. That's great. What can I buy? I'm stuck on the prairies. I, there's the fort shop, and that's it. Well, how about we give you that bonus, and we give you a pint of beer a day? Okay, sold. You, you said <laughs> so, beer healthier than water, but if you think about any movies you see with the ships or all the rest, it was often just stocked with beer, not water, because you sure. could keep it more sanitary because of the um, alcohol well, content? That's or? actually back to the open fire thing. You need What's actually the fact that it's boiled. You need to boil beer to make beer. Um, once it's boiled, and especially bottled, Nothing that can make you sick is going to be alive in there. You take a slurp of water that hasn't been boiled, um, you can get pretty Mm -hmm. sick. Even in a developed country with good sanitation, you can't trust surface water. So, yeah, it definitely was and sometimes still is a healthier option. I'm not saying just stop drinking water, drink beer. Winnipeg's water is great. No, but when you're in Mexico and, you know, other destinations, Traveling, yep, certainly. It's not a, that's not a bad philosophy. It's not certainly, a bad way to go. Certainly. Right? And, um, you know, we do sometimes have those brown water days. Not 
had to have something in the fridge for those. <laughs> Backup plan yep. for the brown water days. Is there something purposeful behind doing the open fire brewing in winter as opposed to making it a summer course? Cooling it off, actually. Uh, you do need to cool homemade, well, any beer fairly quickly or you can end up with off flavors. Uh, you want to get the yeast that you want in there as quick as possible. Otherwise, it sometimes tastes like boiled cabbage. Not oh. good. Cabbage beer? Not No, not a thing. So doing it in August means you need cold water. You need ice. Um, there actually used to be a German law that said you can only brew from October through March. So not necessarily honoring the letter of that law, but in the spirit of that, man, it's easier to cool things in the winter. We've chosen to do our open fire brewing sort of November through March. Mm-hmm. So you, you said at the top that you had to do it on an open fire as opposed mm-hmm. to indoors or on a, on a propane uh, with, a, with propane. Why specifically fire? Well, that's what they, for that recipe that had come from the Hudson Bay era, that's what the brewer at the fort would have been doing. That's what sort of sold me on it. Um, my granddad had vague memories of his, his dad, my great granddad, doing something similar when he was a kid. I didn't know that until I'd done the um, fur trade era thing. Why now? The fort we're into doing things as close to the land as possible. Wood is an incredibly sustainable fuel. Um, We're standing at the edge of the woods where more wood is locking up carbon dioxide in those trees as we are burning it. So it's a closed loop that way. It's a nice, easily available fuel. Um, And there's something about standing around a campfire that brings people together. Uh, There's not a lot of courses that you can take that sort of begin and end standing around a campfire getting to know new friends. And that seems to really happen on these courses. It's kind of cool. Barrett, you were expressing to me uh, your fascination with how many people turned up at Fort White Alive, uh, even on New Year's Day when it was Mm -hmm. quite cold. So these winter programs are incredibly popular, are they not? They are. And uh, if beer making is not your thing, if you're looking for something to do for the last couple days of the winter break... Today is jam pail curling and ice bowling, so that'll be nice. The ice will be very, very fast, keen, as us curlers say today. So if you want some keen ice for jam pail curling, check that out today. And a family photo scavenger hunt tomorrow. Um, It's supposed to maybe clear up a little bit, I believe. If you get there, some beautiful shots in the sunshine, I'm sure, for that. So come away having had a fun activity and then some nice family photos for... uh, Maybe next year's Christmas card. And again, open fire brewing happening next Saturday, January 12th, Fort White Alive from 1 to 4 p.m. Admission is 40 bucks for non-members, 35 for Fort White Alive members, and you can get more information on their website, fortwhite.org. Baron Miller, nature expert and beer expert. Yes, who knew? Thank you so much for coming to join us. We appreciate it. Uh, on the subject of nature, are there any uh, animals roaming around that we should know <laughs> I, about? I am prone to hit them, so <laughs> you should tell me which ones I'm about to uh, well, kill on my um, drive home. I haven't seen it myself, but I have heard rumors of a porcupine on the north property at Fort White. So if anybody's cross-country skiing and all of a sudden it looks like a nest of leaves in the trees is shaking itself... Don't worry, the leaves aren't coming to life. You're probably just seeing a porcupine wake up. So that might be kind of cool. And the deer, they'll be loving, 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 loving the warm weather right now for pawing through the snow to get at still the last little bits of frozen greens underneath. So if you want to see some deer feeding, Fort White um, or your nearest urban forest would be a great place to visit today. All right, Barrett Miller, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we love the visit. 
Chinese spacecraft made the first ever landing on the far side of the moon today. And we're joined live on 680-CJOB by Scott Young, manager of the Planetarium and Science Gallery at the Manitoba Museum. And Scott, I think the first thing we need to, to ask you about, because we we referred to it as the dark side of the moon, which was uh, we were pounced upon a virtual lynch mob at our, <laughs> outside our windows with fire and torches and axes. Not quite, but we did get a couple of people say, hey, it's not the dark side of the moon. So is that, in fact, a fallacy? Yeah, the, the dark side of the moon is not... Um always on the far side. Whenever we see the moon, some of it's lit up and some of it is, is not lit up. That's the dark side. So the dark side always changes. But the um, far side of the moon is always pointed away from the Earth. So as the geometry changes, as the, the moon goes around the Earth, the Earth goes around the sun, these angles always change. But um, the far side is always the far side, but it's not always the dark side. So what's the big deal here when it comes to China landing on the moon? Well, what's interesting is that... Um, to land on the moon, you have to be—you have to have your act together. You have to have a lot of great technology. You have to have a an economy that is cooking along very well that can afford to do such things, um, and you you also have to have all the robotic technology and all of these uh, all of these little pieces all put together. So it's kind of a status symbol, to be honest. It's kind of China standing up and saying, "Hey, look, we're a big player here," which is they've been doing that um, for quite a while, but. They've also tried to outdo everybody else a little bit. No one has ever landed on the on the far side of the moon before, um, mostly because it's it's harder. You can't you can't talk to uh, the spacecraft directly there because, of course, the moon's in the way. So um, it's 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 one of those things that just demonstrates um, not only are we able to do these things, but we're able to do them a little bit better than everybody else has. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole science side of things. I mean, this is an area of the moon we've never gone to before. Uh, what's there? What are they going to discover? Who knows? We'll have to see. So, Scott, uh, we see partnerships between Europe, uh, even Russia and the United States and Canada working in concert in terms of space or exploration. Currently, is China doing this all on its own, or do they have some partnerships as well? You know, they're pretty much doing it on their own. They, they're um, doing everything internally. However, a lot of their technology does bear some very interesting um, similarities to Russian technology. Um, and so whether there's, you know, sort of behind the scenes partnership or whether there's just some outright copying going on, it's hard to say. Um, but yeah, they, they seem to be really trying to prove that, you know, we, the whole rest of the world is doing stuff in space and then we can do the same thing all by ourselves. We don't need anybody. Scott, what, what is the, the benefit of even going back to the moon, especially to the far side uh, that we can't see? What, what do they hope to gain by going up there? Well, I, they're really building to um, the ultimate uh, bit of exploration, which is sending astronauts there. You, you kind of want to do this in a, in a phased approach, and they've said that they're going to send astronauts back to the moon. Um, and the whole purpose behind that is really the, the exploration, the idea of sending people beyond the Earth and being able to go out into the solar system and, and do exploration. That's something that, you know, humans have done for thousands of years, and it's, it's something that we've kind of stalled at in the last uh, 50 years or so um, after the first moon landings. And uh, it's the kind of thing that will show that, look, China is a, a real leader in the world. We're the people that are taking us beyond um, Earth orbit and going off to the moon and eventually Mars. 
um, that kind of exploration spirit is, is something that we have to get back to because it's it's central to who we are as, as a, a species. What happened? I mean, what was behind the moving away from that? It's like we landed on the moon and then we said, OK, we've done that. We're moving on to the next um you know, conquest or, or planet. And, and now all these decades later, we've decided to go back to it. What, what, was, what was missing or why, did, why was there that attitude back then? Well, I mean, really the whole uh, sending people to the moon was really driven by the Cold War. And it was a, a way to demonstrate, you know, again, who's, who's the better country, the United States or the Soviet Union back at the time. And it was a way to do so without actually fighting a real war. So it kind of stood in for that kind of conflict. Um, it's hugely expensive to do that. Um, and really the only reason that it happened was that, you know, President Kennedy said, I don't care what it costs, just make it happen. And uh, that kind of, you know, budget just doesn't exist anymore. So we, we see a lot of, uh, of differences in the way things are being done now. China is, is going very methodically. They're going very slow. They didn't rush uh, to do this. They don't say, oh, we're going to do it by X date. In fact, we didn't really know that the mission was underway until they had already launched successfully. They're, they're keeping things very close to the vest and, uh, and not letting people know um, what's going on. So, Scott, one of the concepts I've seen over the years is the idea that perhaps moon, the, the moon is a more natural place to build a, a space station or launch pad for further exploration. It takes so much fuel to get out of the grip of the, the gravitational pull of the Earth. Is that something that we could see? Have we proven that, disproven that? Where are we in terms of, of that theory or, or that evolution, perhaps? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're going to eventually send people out into space or if you're eventually going to go beyond the Earth, it's way cheaper to build stuff out there in space already. Um, once, you, once you build it here on Earth, you have to launch it, and it's very expensive per pound to get stuff out of the gravity of the Earth, as you pointed out. If you can do it on the moon, and the, the great thing about the moon is there are a lot of raw materials there. Basically, everything that you need to make rocket fuel is right there in the dirt on the moon. And uh, so if you could use that as your land or um, manufacturing facility, launching from the moon is way easier because there's a lot less gravity and there's no atmosphere and there's all of those kinds of things. You can do things in a way that would be much more economical. You just need that first sort of um, uh, base on the moon basically to, uh, to start from. And that would, that would make the rest of the solar system exploration way, way less expensive and much more, you know, much more doable. If there's that kind of stuff that can be used on the moon, is there that kind of stuff that can be then harvested to be brought back? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of material that, um, it's kind of interesting. Most of the materials is not very useful for stuff here on Earth. It's not sort of cost-effective to go there, mine it, and then bring it back, except for a few types of of sort of high-tech materials. And right now, the market for those is just not sort of worth it. But eventually, as we find more uses for those kinds of materials, that's certainly a possibility. So we'll have to see how that uh, how that goes. Whether it's going to be exploration or uh, exploitation that really drives us to the to the moon. Does this oblige the Americans to go back to the moon now, Scott? You know, it's funny. Uh, a lot of space uh, fans are saying, "Oh, good, another space race. We're going to see lots of stuff." I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. The, the Americans have a great. Oh, are you still there, Scott? Uh, yeah, I'm still here. Are you there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Americans have a great. Uh, already and it's it's not something that they really need uh, to to go back for 
Before we let you go, I had originally asked you to come on the show yesterday because there's supposed to be a meteor shower, a pretty crazy one to see overnight tonight and in the morning because I was noticing all these falling stars. And then, of course, China, China went and landed on the moon again. So that's taken away. But what, what can we expect if we're driving into work tomorrow morning and, this, and the sun's not up yet? Will we get a show? Yeah, the quadrant and meteor showers is on right now, and uh, the peak was actually uh, last night, but it's still uh, still fairly active for the next day or so. And so, lots of little pieces of dust from space will be uh, falling into the atmosphere and burning up. So the, the the traditional sort of falling star, shooting star, you've got a good chance of seeing some still uh, after sunset tonight, and um, maybe into the morning tomorrow. We'll we'll see how it goes. Um, it's really all about, of course, whenever there's a big event coming up, we've got to worry about uh, clear skies, and unfortunately we didn't have it last night. Hey, one more question about the far side of the moon or any side that happens to be outside of sunlight. <laughs> What's the temperature? Any idea how cold yeah, it is? Yeah, it's, it's like minus 200, so it's the kind of thing that um, is, a, is a very difficult environment to survive in. Wow. Sounds uh, difficult to one word for it, minus two hundred. Only Manitobans need apply for the job. Yeah, exactly. The, we can, we, that's nothing for us. That's right? right. We got that down pat. There we go. Now we know. Scott Young, manager of the Planetarium and Science Gallery at the Manitoba Museum. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, sir. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.